This is Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. Welcome back. It's been a while. Been on a bit of an unintentional hiatus for a little while. If you've been following on Facebook or Twitter, um, you'll see that I was kind of struggling with a a bit of an existential crisis about whether or not I wanted to uh, keep doing the podcast. There were a couple reasons for this. Uh, First off, one of the reasons I was reconsidering is I had a rude guest. I, I tried to approach a potential guest who essentially turned me down because the, the audience wasn't large enough. I was only cracking about 40 to 200 listeners uh, per episode and uh, because the, the podcast was too long. So I, I got a kind of a disgruntled response from a, from a potential guest that kind of was a little discouraging. Uh, the second thing that happened was the, the kind of listener base size that hasn't been my primary reason for doing it but you know it's it's kind of hovering in the background uh the third reason is um i recorded another episode with kale keegan um it was a actually a skype lecture that we had kale come in for at our university and due to technical difficulties it was completely lost after recording essentially the uh the recording mechanism through uh, Zoom uh, didn't work, so I lost an, an entire episode. So between these kind of three variables, I was just kind of like, do I want to keep doing this or not? And um, I got some really, really kind comments from colleagues who really enjoyed the show and from guests who said that it meant a lot to them. Uh, so needless to say, I, I feel like I want to keep going, but I also want to make a couple minor changes as we keep going, and that's really reconsidering the format. Um I think some of the episodes are a bit long. I think asking guests for 60 to 90 minutes is is a bit of a large ask. I think most colleagues are fine with that, but I'm not sure if everyone is. Um, It's also a lot to ask of a listener for 60 to 90 minutes. So I thought what I might start doing is doing smaller episodes that aren't always about uh, fess-ups. I thought I might do uh, an episode about, uh, like today, the Criterion Channel and uh, HD or 4K Ultra High Def uh, Blu-ray. I thought I might do another episode on a colleague's book and another episode if we're going to bring Kale Keegan back and and do that episode again. So we're going to talk to Kale about his book. And we'll do other episodes about fess-ups, essentially diversifying the the pool a little bit and having uh, different topics. And I thought that might be easier to navigate for listeners who were a little gun-shy on listening to episodes that weren't necessarily about movies they were familiar with. I know a lot of folks really wanted to listen to the Maya Smuckler episode, but they were a little concerned that they hadn't seen Mikey and Nikki didn't want it spoiled for them. So I'm going to try to play around with uh, with format, uh, and I hope you're patient with me. I really appreciate you tuning in, um, and I, I hope it works out. So I wanted to kind of start back with a brief appraisal of, of two things that I've been kind of playing around with for the last couple months, um, and that's uh, 4K Blu-ray and um, the Criterion Channel. So I upgraded to a 4K TV about a year ago. Um, Best Buy has a really decent TCL uh, that's 55 inches. It's got Dolby Vision. It's got HDR. It's got. It's basically 
one of the best, I think it's the P-Series, uh, I can't remember, if you tweet at me at the Cinema Doctor, I'll get you the specifics. Um, in any case, Best Buy has a TCL 55-inch with Dolby Vision. That's relatively inexpensive. When I bought it about a year and a half ago, I think it was about five or $600. Now it's down to uh, 350 And the content looks phenomenal. I actually wasn't in the market for a 4K TV explicitly. I just wanted a larger HD uh, setup in my Los Angeles apartment. And uh, I had heard great things about this TV, so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll spend a little bit more and, and make this leap to 4K. Um, when I was doing research on 4K, what I kind of learned is that 4K only really makes a difference if you're sitting very closely, if the TV is under like 60 inches, and if you're basically um, getting a, a large monitor. So the, the difference can be negligible depending on the size of your space, where you're sitting, and the size of the monitor. So at 55 inches in a relatively small apartment where you're sitting about six to seven feet away, you may not register uh, a lot of difference. Um, but it, it, the, the colors are certainly very vibrant, and uh, I actually really like the, the blacks on it. Uh, I can calibrate it a lot better than I could my old plasma, which the plasma has decent blacks, but technology has come a long way in the last couple of years. Um, so this this past Christmas, I, I upgraded to a 4K player. Um, I primarily used a, a PlayStation 4 for my Blu-rays, and the PlayStation 4 doesn't play um, HD 4K Blu-rays, so I had to upgrade to a Sony uh, player. And the results, I'll be honest, are, are kind of mixed. Um, I've found that movies that look fantastic on Blu-ray, especially later Blu-ray transfers like uh, the, the newest Blade Runner sequel. Um, they look they look good on Blu-ray. They look good on 4K. I don't register a tremendous difference between the two. Um, Dunkirk was kind of along the same ways. I got a, a bit more finer detail out of Dunkirk on 4K. Uh, you could kind of register the camera shaking, uh, but your mileage is going to vary on some of those titles. The titles I noticed the biggest difference are on our um, remasters of old Blu-ray titles. So Predator, which was marred by horrible DNR on Blu-ray, has a fantastic-looking 4K release. That it's it's grainy, it's beautiful, um, and but a lot of that again is because of a new remaster that wasn't available on uh, on Blu-ray. It's just on the 4K. Similarly. American Psycho got a much better remaster for 4K than it had for Blu-ray. Uh, so really, I've noticed on, it's on these kind of older catalog titles that are getting a bit more of uh, TLC than um, than they did on Blu-ray on 4K now. The best title I have seen, beyond a doubt, is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, the remaster that Warner Brothers did, which is very different than the one that uh, Chris Nolan did last year that was photochemical in nature, just knocks your socks off. I really, really, it, it's it's basically a demo disc. It's it's a wonderful demo disc, and it's worth the money. That being said, I'm slightly disappointed in the format as a whole. Uh, first off, because a lot of publishers aren't supporting it. Uh, there are still many releases that haven't been upgraded to 4K. Secondly, Publishers aren't putting, even if they are supporting it, aren't necessarily putting their back into it. Um, I repurchased Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy on 4K because it's, you know, Batman, and you guys know me, I love my Batman. And I was kind of shocked to find that the extra features from the deluxe edition, which had like a 
90-minute conversation with Richard Donner and Christopher Nolan and a um, maybe two- or three-hour documentary about the making of The Dark Knight. All of that was cut. The only special features on the 4K set were from the earlier Blu-rays because it came packaged with the earlier Blu-rays. Um, similarly, my understanding is that The Matrix doesn't come with half of the bonus features from the Blu-ray release. So I'm really disappointed in, in how publishers are not bringing the collection of special features along with them. It really seems kind of half-assed to me, and that's a disappointment. Um, so I would say the, the lack of support, um, both in terms of porting over releases and bringing them up to date, um, and um, the lack of bonus features kind of holds it back a little bit. I'd add one third thing, and that's... Th this is... Okay, I don't know how quite detailed detailed to get with regard to the technological nature of this, but Dolby Vision is a better encoding for HDR than uh, regular HDR. Um, Dolby Vision, I, I think the difference, if I remember correctly, lets you fine-tune movies on the basis of, of the shot, or maybe even the frame, whereas HDR coding is basically you do it for uh, larger pieces, so you, get the, you can kind of fine-tune the whole forest, but Dolby Vision lets you fine-tune the trees. So there's there's a difference in quality between Dolby Vision, which is better than HDR regular. So a lot of publishers haven't necessarily been embracing Dolby Vision on the discs. Here's the odd part. You'll see Dolby Vision often on the uh, the voodoo code that you may get with the, with the disc. This is odd to me. Why put Dolby Vision on voodoo uh, for a movie like Dunkirk or Blade Runner, um, but not put it on the disc. Essentially, you're never going to be able to stream at a high enough rate, at least with the, the internet the way it is now, where you'd be getting anything close to Dolby Vision on a 4K disc. In fact, it probably gets slightly better in between DVD and Blu-ray quality. So it seems like a waste to me, and yet these these masters exist. Um, so that's, that's also kind of frustrating. Um... So my whole shtick, I guess, to summarize on the 4K thing is I'm glad I did it. The 4K player I bought was maybe $100. Um, I'm glad I did it for movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey. The original Blade Runner looks fantastic. Um, but I'd be very, very wary of upgrading my entire library. Um, as time has gone on, I've replaced a lot of my DVD copies with Blu-rays, and I can't imagine replacing my Blu-rays to the same extent with 4K copies. One, I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where I'll be allowed to. And two, I just I don't think there's that big of a difference for most films. Um, I'm actually very curious, though, to see a film like Schindler's List, which is one of the first uh, black-and-white films on 4K, to see what kind of difference that technology makes for a black-and-white film versus a color one. Needless to say, H, um, 4K HD um, format gets kind of a lukewarm review from me. If you have the means, check it out. Check out those handful of discs, Predator, Blade Runner, both of them, uh, the Nolan films, and 2001. But beyond that, yeah, I'm kind of kind of on the fence. Oh, Big Lebowski looks good, too. Criterion Channel is the second thing I've been spending my time with. Um, I, I've, I had some, some guilt over not taking advantage of Filmstruck enough when it was around. I subscribed... 
and then when it was gone, I was like, man, there were so many movies on there I wish I would have watched more of. So in order to take advantage of the Criterion channel, I actually brought back, I normally carry a binder of DVDs and Blu-rays with me between Los Angeles and uh, Texas where I teach uh, so that I can prioritize certain films. And I was like, listen, this semester I'm, I'm just going to, once Criterion channel launches, I'm just going to dig into that. I'm not going to use any of my discs. I'm going to bring them back and force myself to watch uh, some of the films here. Um, I'll say right off the bat that the app is a little glitchy uh, for the Criterion channel. I've had films that freeze up. I've had films that cut off towards the end. Um, I would say it's about a 20% chance of having a technical error. Uh, so there's certainly still working out some bugs. That being said, I watched maybe eight movies without a problem. And um, it's certainly not terribly widespread, but it does occur. And of course, when it does occur, it's at the end of a film, which is not necessarily when you want it to happen. Um, so take that in mind if you're subscribing. Um, I've been watching it on a, on a streaming Roku box. I'll certainly say that the, the quality on my Roku, which is connected via Wi-Fi instead of the, uh, the, you know, the actual cable, um, is better than Filmstruck. Filmstruck, I, I tended to have issues with it um, buffering uh, very often on my uh, Wi-Fi connection, and uh, Criterion Channel does not have that problem. I've been working through the Columbia Noir series, and I think I have maybe two movies left, maybe one movie left, and uh, it's really been a tremendous treat. Um, first off, because most of them are like 70 to 90 minutes so they're all kind of short and compact and you can kind of crack two of them up over the course of an evening very easily Um, so I'm going to kind of summarize a couple of those films real quickly and just kind of give you my first impressions the first two I watched were the Joseph Lewis ones Uh, my name is Julia Ross and so Dark the Night I I was describing these movies to Ben Sampson the other day, who had just subscribed, and we were kind of having a conversation about what we liked. Um, I would say that I think My Name is Julia Ross is the better made film. I think the performances are stronger. The story kind of hangs together better. Um, But I I guess I was a little thrown because it's not really a noir in a traditional sense. It's essentially... It kind of reminded me of uh, of Rebecca or uh, a Hitchcock kind of gothic romance where a woman is being gaslit. So it doesn't really have a femme fatale. It's not really set in a city. It's about a woman who's basically kidnapped and told that she is this. Uh, she's not who she thinks she is. Um, the issues I have with Lewis's film are really about the kind of structure of the narrative where you know very early on that this woman is being gaslit. So there's never really this moment in which you're questioning the sanity of the protagonist. You you know very early on that she is sane. Uh, so I thought that kind of undermined some of the the narrative hooks of the film. That said, it's, it's a very kind of engaging watch at, you know, 65 minutes and uh, the cast is a lot of fun. It's got uh, George McCready as uh, the, the villain. The second film that Lewis does in the series is So Dark the Night. And So Dark the Night I would describe as kind of being if you took Renoir and he made an Agatha Christie movie and you put those two things together. Essentially it's about a detective in the French countryside who's trying to solve the murder of a young woman that he's kind of uh, had a taking to. He's a, he's an older 
detective. Um, but and I'm going to get into spoilers in just a moment here. Um, there's such a crazy narrative hook at the end um, that I thought it was a lot more interesting of a movie than My Name Is Julia Ross. But I don't think it's necessarily as well acted or as well written. So I, I kind of admired the audacity of it um, from a storytelling standpoint. But I don't think all of the individual pieces quite came together in quite the same way. Um, so I think My Name is Julie Ross kind of does a good, a really solid job of being a middle-of-the-road movie. I think So Dark as the Night has more ambition, but it doesn't necessarily uh, nail the landing. I skipped The Big Heat. Uh, I've seen it many times before. I love it. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, a mean film noir uh, that has Lee Marvin... Um, throwing some hot coffee in Glory Graham's face. So if you haven't seen it, it's it's pretty fantastic. Um, after that, I dug into Drive a Crooked Road with Mickey Rooney. Um, I, I was kind of... I was... I, I liked it. Um, I don't know how well Mickey Rooney does as playing kind of a doomed uh, protagonist in a film noir, but what I did appreciate about this film... And I, I would I would note that most of these, with the exception of probably the big heat, kind of stretch the definition of what we might determine as noir. Um, Drive a Crooked Road is is kind of unique because it's set in sunny Los Angeles, uh, and very little of it is set at night. And the femme fatale is actually very, very regretful about what she is doing to the to the protagonist she knows she's taken advantage of this guy and feels bad about it and a lot of it's about her kind of crisis so it it, it kind of humanizes the villains in in such a way that most film noir doesn't so it's it's interesting for that fritz lang's human desire uh a remake of uh a fritz lang film was good um but it just it, you're kind of distracted by the fact that Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham aren't as good as they are in The Big Heat. Um, Pushover kind of suffers similar problems. It has Fred McMurray as a uh, kind of a crooked cop who falls in love with Kim Novak in what I believe is her first movie. But while Novak is great, uh, Fred McMurray, while not being bad, is kind of phoning it in. And it's kind of distracting because he's essentially doing like the Mr. Pibb version of his character in Double Indemnity. So it's just, you're distracted by the fact that you've seen this guy do the same performance uh, in uh, kind of better films before. Two of my favorites so far, I would say probably my, actually, let me rephrase that. I would say my three favorite films so far in the series are Jacques Turner's Nightfall, Don Siegel's The Lineup, and Irving Lerner's Murder by Contract. Turner's Nightfall is a lot of fun um, for, I think, for the for how it kind of plays with location. You get dark and bleak Los Angeles at night, and then there's this kind of countryside in the snow. Um, it's got Anne Bancroft in it, um, and it also has this fantastic murder scene. It's one of the, the most kind of creative murder scenes I've seen and it has uh, a guy basically get murdered with a snowplow it's kind of incredible um, so Nightfall very beautiful it's Jacques, Jacques Turner who did uh, Out of the Past and Night of the Demon another film we've covered here at the podcast definitely worth checking out 
um, for his kind of visual style and for the inventiveness of the ending. Don Siegel's The Lineup um, with Eli Wallach is is really great because it's out of the, the series next to Big Heat, it is probably the meanest movie I have seen on this channel. It's one of the meanest film noirs of the classical period I've ever seen. Um, it, it starts off a little slow. Uh, essentially, this cab driver gets in a car wreck and they're trying you know detectives are trying to see the the crime so it starts it's a noir that starts from the outside these detectives putting it together but as soon as it kind of hones in on Eli Wallach trying to track down some heroin it gets a lot better and there's a scene of him essentially terrorizing a family and this little girl has uh, discovered the heroin and has put it on uh, her doll's face because she thinks it's makeup and he's basically going to like terrorize this family and maybe beat them and it's it's I'm, you know you're you're just kind of watching this movie and you're like holy shit for being a film made in 1958 this movie is like mean as piss is really the best way to describe it um, it's it's bleak as hell and I, I kind of admired it for being just so dark um, Murder by Contract by Irving Lerner. Um, this one is notable. I, I, evidently, I, and I did not know this uh, until I had watched it, this movie is cited by Martin Scorsese as being one of the most influential on his career and on his um, his kind of personality. It's very much a cool, laid-back hitman movie. It's essentially, um, as I was watching it, I was like, this is where Tarantino and Melville and all of these guys got their style. It's about a hitman who is very professional in his job. He defines himself by his job. You're getting a lot of kind of flashbacks of the samurai here. Um, and he just, he kind of enjoys the, the high life he's given this contract in which he's uh, brought out to Los Angeles to kill somebody, and he's just kind of, you know, seeing the sights and drinking good booze and eating good food, and he takes pride in his work and really enjoys it, and then he finds out that his target is a woman, uh, and it kind of puts him into this this funk. He's, he feels like he can't kill a woman. Uh, so again, there's, there's a lot of the samurai to be seen here, and uh, I think in terms of just how much it must have influenced folks later on from the French New Wave to the folks that were influenced by the French New Wave like Tarantino and Scorsese, it's it's very much kind of worth looking at as being kind of, you know, the, the, first, the first in line of these kind of cool, laid back, more kind of I think almost mundane film noirs where it's it's it is very much about undermining the premise of suspense where this guy's just like literally chilling out at the beach and catching rays before he's supposed to go kill somebody. So Nightfall, the lineup and murder by contract were my three favorites so far. Uh last night I watched the the burglar. Um it was fine. I I, I can't really say much about it beyond that. It was I, I think by this point of like watching 10 film noirs across a week. I've, I've forgotten parts of it, and it's kind of bled in with everything else. Um, but um, I, I would just say overall that the, the series has been a lot of fun, and uh, I've really enjoyed some of these these lesser films, and even if it's not lesser films, but um, lesser known films, I would, I would put it. And um, even if you get, like, a dud, like, um, or like a lesser film, 
they're they're 70 minutes you're not out anything you've still seen something that's uh that's at least stylish and and and, and has its has its rewards the last film I have to watch is uh, Blake Edwards' Experiment in Terror. This is notably the longest one, so I've been kind of procrastinating, and it's also uh, one of the latest ones. It's from 1962. Interesting side note that I forgot to mention earlier is Drive a Crooked Road was written by Blake Edwards, so um, I, I I'm, did not really realize that he had quite as extensive a career in film noir as, as this, if we want to call these Columbia films. Um, films film noir again I've kind of suggested that the uh, the premises and the character types and the storytelling of some of these stretch that definition to a great extent um, but yeah Criterion Channel very much worth your time be a little patient with the Roku app um, it, it can be a little bit of a pain um, but it's been for 80% of the things I've watched pretty flawless HD 4K Blu-ray slightly warmer or slightly uh colder um kind of recommendation from me but again it's we have to see where it goes uh we have to see what titles are coming out down the line i'm certainly excited about alien uh i'm curious about kino lorber's first entry which is going to be ridley scott's hannibal um there there are titles on the horizon that could kind of change it but i'm not terribly optimistic given how few um, home video publishers are actually embracing it actively for things beyond superhero movies. So we'll, we'll have to see. But in the meantime, I thank you for tuning in to uh, Film School Fuss Ups. In the next couple of weeks, you'll find an episode with Kill Keegan and I talking about the Wachowskis and uh, his new book on them. And, uh, yeah, welcome back. I appreciate your time. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at The Cinema Doctor and uh, on iTunes and Spotify if you wish to subscribe. So thanks for tuning in. See you at the movies.